today. And if you have the hard cover black Bibles that we hand out here, this is on page 940. And we're going to read Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. And before we do that, I better pull out my glasses. As we read this, let's remember we're reading God's word. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision brings uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision an outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Dale. When was the last time you got pulled over? Anybody want to share the story? There aren't, a, there aren't many feelings that are worse than getting pulled over, especially when you know you did it. Like I remember one time in high school going just a smidge too fast through a stop sign or two and, um, and being pulled over. And, and there's that bright light, you know, that they shine in the, and it's coming through the back of your window and you just sit there and you feel like you're about three inches tall and you just are like, oh. And, and especially if you know you did it, right? It's one thing if like you're not sure or whatever, but you know you're guilty, right? And, and the officer comes up and they say, um, can I see your license and registration? Or, or they say, do you know how fast you were going or do you know how many stop signs you ran or, you know, whatever it was. And, and um and you just, if you know you're guilty, you just go, oh. And yet the thing you wish you had at that moment was like a golden ticket, right? Like you wish you could just like drop a name. Like, hey, do you know Tim Campbell? Because I think he's your boss. And I, you know, or, or, what, or you, know, you want to drop a name. Or you wish you had some sort of piece of paper that you could just sort of hand the officer and, and kind of do that. Well, I think I got one of those today, actually. Um, my, you know how you have to carry proof of insurance in your car? Well, well um, my wife printed one out for me today um, to have in my car. And um, she's been doing swim lessons and prints out, you know, these really colorful certificates for all her kids. And so when she printed out my my proof of insurance, um, here's what I got today, um, is a very colorful proof of insurance. And so I, I got this, and I said, are you serious? Are you kidding about this? And she's like, no, th- this is good. She thought, you know, maybe if you get pulled over, you could hand this to him, and it would be, you know, he'd have a sense of humor, and would go, hey, okay, nobody, you know, and you could tell this story or whatever, and, and um, it would be great if this was a kind of golden ticket, right? Here, here I'm off the hook. The reason I mention that is, is partly because it's funny and partly because uh, what we're going to look at today in this passage is a group of people who Paul has been trying to convince they're guilty, right? He's pulled them over. He's shining the light in the back window of their life. They're not totally ready to admit that they're guilty, but they, but they think it doesn't matter because they think they've got a golden ticket. 
They think they have a free pass, that, that no matter what they do, it doesn't matter because they have a free pass into heaven. Now, uncomfortably, that free pass is circumcision. Uh, interesting that that falls on Father's Day, isn't it? Gentlemen, welcome. Hope we're all squirming together. Um, but, but as we're going to see in this passage, these Jews that Paul is particularly writing to in this moment thought, you know what, Paul, you're making this whole case about sin, right? You're saying that the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, you're saying they're sinful. And now you're trying to say that the Jews are sinful. But listen, Paul, you're blowing this whole thing out of proportion because we're God's people. We're the people of the covenant. We're God's chosen people. And we have the law. And that's what we looked at last week is they said, Paul, we got the law. We know it inside and out. We know what's right and wrong. And Paul's answer was, yeah, but it does you no good if you don't keep it. And then this week, Paul begins to answer another objection that they might have. And remember, the Apostle Paul's been traveling the world. He's been hearing from all kinds of Jews and Gentiles, hearing all their objections. He know, he's been around the block. He knows how Jews think. And the next thing that Jews are, are bringing up that Paul is going to address is this question of, well, Paul, listen, we got circumcision. And circumcision is our golden ticket. Now, just to give you kind of some background and understanding about that, because this is not an everyday conversation about circumcision and what that is and why that's important. And I know a number of you are, are new to church and new to the scripture, and already you're like, am I in the right place? Um, and so let me just tell you kind of about circumcision. Um, Circumcision was given as the sign of the covenant to Abraham. Abraham is the man that uh, Jews and Christians all point their lineage back to. He's the father of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 17, God gives him this sign. He had already been chosen to, be, to carry God's name and to, to, to be a blessing to the nations. But, but as the sign, as sort of a seal of this, uh, God says, Abraham... I want you and all your household to be circumcised. That's going to be the sign of the covenant. In fact, we'll get into that a little bit more when we get to Romans chapter 4 and we look at Abraham and how uh, it wasn't Abraham's circumcision that did anything of spiritual value. What it was was his faith that then was followed by circumcision. So we'll get into that a little bit. But, but this was a significant deal. And isn't it interesting that when God wants to get a man's attention and say, you're mine. Isn't it interesting that that's what he goes for? I don't think it's insignificant. It's funny, but it's not insignificant. Here's what one commentator says. No doubt this surgery was symbolic of the sinfulness of man that was passed from generation to generation. The very procreative organ needed to be cleansed of a covering. So man at the very center of his nature is sinful and needs cleansing of the heart. This graphic symbol of the need for removing sin became the sign of being a Jew. So it was to be a constant daily reminder, I need cleansed. But instead of it being that, instead of it being something that reminded people of their guilt and their need, it instead became this sort of license to do whatever I want. It's my golden ticket. I can break the law. It doesn't matter. I still am okay. Uh, one rabbi of uh, these, these times said this, no circumcised Jewish man will see hell. The Midrash, which is an ancient commentary on the Old Testament, mistakenly says this, 
God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. There's multiple errors in that commentary, but that was the mentality, perhaps, that some people had that Paul's writing against. Paul, we got, we got it covered. I'm okay. And Paul is going to write back, verses 25 to 29, and his main point is this. It's what's inside that counts. It's what's inside that counts. Circumcision isn't a matter of external. It's not a matter of outward. It's not a matter of this symbol. It's it's a matter of what's happened in your heart. It's what's inside that counts. Now, I love the movie Liar, Liar. Have you seen that where Jim Carrey for 24 hours is forced to tell the truth about everything? And so his young son is quizzing him, you know, will will sitting too close to the TV, you know, make me blind? He says, no. And the son asks, you know, my teacher says that, that beauty is on the inside. And he says, well, that's only something ugly people say. All right, and so every time I hear, it's, it, that's what's inside that counts. That's, I, think of that, I think of that movie. But Paul here is going to say, before people, it's what's outside that counts. How do you look? What's your status? What kind of stuff do you have? What kind of car do you drive? Where do you live? What kind of clothes do you wear? Who knows you? Who do you know? But before God... It's what's inside that counts. Man looks at the outward appearance, Scripture tells us. God looks at the heart. It's what's inside that counts. And so pointing to this outward sign is worthless, Paul says. This doesn't save you in itself. Now, before we dig into the passage, I want to actually look at the text itself. But we got to ask this question. How on earth does this apply to us? Because I don't hear anybody, I mean, I've never had someone saying to me, Luke, I'm circumcised, I'm going to heaven. I've never had someone say that. And I've never had someone, you know, call to set up an appointment and say, I'm worried about my salvation. Why? Because I'm uncircumcised. I've never had that. There's all kinds of books being written now about heaven and how to get there and who was already there and what they have to tell you about it and all these things. And none of them are saying circumcision is the golden ticket. So how do we take this ancient situation that Paul is looking at, how does this connect to us today? And and here's what I want to tell you. There's a strong connection. Because what these Jews were doing was pointing to an outward external sign and saying, that's my ticket to heaven. That's my ticket to salvation. And we do the very same thing. Now, we don't do it with circumcision, but I've talked to plenty of people where I've said, are you a Christian? Yes. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I was baptized when I was a baby. Well, when I was 13, I went through confirmation. You know, I went to this uh, church, and they had an altar call, and I came forward. Or I, was in a, or I was in a church, and the pastor said, with every head bowed and with every eye closed, if you would like to give your heart to Jesus, will you raise your hand? And every eye was closed, and I raised my hand, and he said, yes, I see you. You're going to heaven. Right? What, what people today have a tendency to do is to point to these external experiences I was baptized, I was confirmed, I came forward, I marked a card, whatever it is, and and say, that's why I'm going to heaven. That's my golden ticket. 
So I think there's a really strong correlation, actually, between what Paul is going to talk about here and where we find ourselves in. And we need to hear that it's not based on those decisions and it's not based on those moments. It's based on what's inside that counts. Let's look at the passage. Chapter 2, verse 25. They've been talking about the law, which was where the covenant was written. Now the sign of the law is circumcision. He says this, For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Saying circumcision's great. It's a reminder of your covenant with God. It's a reminder of your sinfulness. It's a reminder of your need of God. And it's wonderful. There's value in it. It's not a worthless thing, right? Just like we would say baptism isn't worthless and confirmation classes aren't worthless and having moments of deciding for Christ is not worthless. But it becomes worthless if you're trusting in that because the reality is you break the law. It's of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If your heart is rebelling against God, then it doesn't matter what this mark in your flesh is. Verse 26. So if a man, right, he raises this sort of maybe hypothetical situation. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So Paul is saying a Gentile here, someone that's not a Jew, someone that isn't circumcised, which, which by the way, the Jews would have felt very much uh, sort of, ugh, Gentiles. Ugh, they're not God's people. They're outcasts. We look down on them. right? We, uh, sort of a slur was all oh, those uncircumcised Gentiles. And Paul's saying, let's imagine one of them keeps the law actually does, by faith, what the law commands, do you really think that God is going to go, sorry, doesn't matter, you don't have the mark? Is that what you think? That's his question. If a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Isn't God going to treat him like he's one of his people if by faith he's kept God's law? Verse 27, and this would be unimaginably shocking to these people hearing this. Then he who is, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. He's saying, listen, at at the judgment, you think that there's all that, you know, you're going to rise up and you're going to judge all these filthy, uncircumcised Gentiles. The reality is you're in danger that at the final judgment, one of those uncircumcised Gentiles who by faith has kept my law will judge you, condemn you. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now that's interesting. Paul here is saying there are Jews and there are Jews. There are ethnic Jews and there are true Jews. There are physical Jews and there are spiritual Jews. The Jews are the true people of God, the covenant people of God. And Paul here is saying, just because you have the DNA and just because you have the mark in your skin 
doesn't mean that you're really one of God's covenant people. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, he says. So there's, there's Jews and there's Jews. There's circumcision and there's circumcision. You get that? Circumcision is not outward and physical. The thing that God is looking for, for you to be in heaven, is not outward and physical, verse 29, but a Jew, a true Jew, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. God's people are God's people at heart. Not just external. Right? He's not saying that if you have the external signs, you're out. He's just saying you can have the external signs, and that doesn't mean you're in. You can have been baptized and not have a changed heart. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. And then this is a key phrase. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Because Paul is saying, listen, up to this point, he said, it's impossible to keep the law. You can't keep God's law. But there are some, even some uncircumcised Gentiles, who will keep the law, but they'll do it by the Spirit. Paul is going to talk in Romans 8 about the Spirit of God. And and when Paul is saying here, by the Spirit, what he's talking about is by faith. So a a person can, can obey the Lord, but they do it by faith, by the Spirit, not by the letter. This person's praise is not from man, but from God. Right? The, the, the external focused person goes, look at me. Aren't I a good boy? Don't I keep all the things right? But in heart, I don't. Whereas the, the true Jew, the true member of God's family, keeps the law by the Spirit, by faith, trusting God. Not because they're perfect, but trusting in what Christ has done, and then through that, obeying by the Spirit. And they do it to please God. So you get this sort of, sort of contrast. Here's a formula. I think John Piper sums this up well. It's, it's sort of a helpful way to, to understand this passage. Uh, the first formula is this. Law minus Spirit equals external praise of man, it leads to death. So if you're focused on the law, I got the law, but you're not doing it by faith and you're not doing it by God's spirit and it's just all about externals and about how do I look and about trying to sort of muscle through it. If, if you do that, it's just external. It, it's these people going, Paul, we got the law. Paul, we got circumcision. He's going, yeah, but it's just external. Your heart's still rock hard. It's focused on the praise of men. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, he he would have already dealt with this in his life by the time he wrote Romans, and in Galatians there were all these Jews who were coming to these Gentile Christians and saying, that's great you believe in Jesus, but if that's not quite enough, you also need to be circumcised. And Paul says, listen, if, if you take on circumcision, then you better keep it perfectly. It's all external. It's about the praise of men. The other way to look at it is that the law plus the Spirit, so obedience plus the Spirit, is internal. It's seeking the praise of God. Not, not to appear great before other people, but to, to obey the Lord. And it leads to life. 
See, this is what's interesting, is in both cases, you have people that are appearing to be concerned about doing the right thing. But there's entirely different motives. And one person goes, I I want to appear to do the right thing. It doesn't really matter if I do, because either way, I got the golden ticket. Whereas the true follower of God says, I'm doing this by God's Spirit. I need his help. I see my circumcision not as a golden ticket, but as a, as a mark of my sinfulness and my need. And I'm going to him and I need life. That's essentially what Paul is getting at here. Now what I want to do for the, the remainder of our time is I want to try to apply this to us, okay? Um, and again, like I said, not many people are going, hey, what do you think about do I need to be circumcised, right? Not a relevant question. But... What Paul points out here, I think this is very relevant, is that there are some people who think they're in God's family who actually aren't. They're deceived. Right? He's not saying you're, doesn't mean they're awful people. They're just deceived. They don't, they don't see things the way God sees it. They would say, I'm going to heaven. God would say, no, you're not. And, and the exact same thing is true today. There are many people even many people who are in church who think they're real Christians. And what Paul is saying here is there are Christians and there are Christians. There are evangelicals and there are people born again of a new heart. So the question is, how do you know which you are? Right? Some of you, I, I, I'm sure, I, I've been in ministry long enough to know some of you really wrestle with that question. Am I really a Christian? And oftentimes that wrestle is even an indication of your desire to know the Lord. And my point today as we apply this is not to get you all confused or throw you into a fit. But then there are others of you who go, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? I'm a good person. I got baptized when I was a baby. I'm confirmed. Get off my back. And I, by God's spirit and with Paul's heart, want to go, hey, you're, in, you're on shaky ice. Be careful. You think you're a Christian, but maybe you're not. And so the question is, how do you know? How do you know? If I, if I came to you and said, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you going to heaven? Yes. How sure are you going to heaven? 100%. Based on what? See, some of you are in a place where you would go, ooh, I don't even think I could say 100%. I think I'm going to heaven. How sure are you? 80%. Why? I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I, I give. I try to do the right thing. I never want to hurt anybody. What I want to help you see is that if you're in that place, it's time to take a good, hard look at what it truly is to be a follower of Jesus. How do you know if you're a Christian? That's what I want to spend our, the rest of our time on. And so, actually, uh, we're going to pull some verses from some other places than Romans uh, as we look at this. Um, and here's kind of how I want to do it. it, it is, and this, this comes from a really helpful uh, kind of chart that I saw John MacArthur had put together um, and, and kind of modifying it a little bit. But, but here's basically what we want to do. I want to look first at evidences that, that neither prove nor disprove your faith, 
So things that might be in your life that you might point to and go, see, that's how I know I'm a Christian, that really is inconclusive. It doesn't prove you're a Christian. It doesn't disprove you're a Christian. It's up for grabs at best. And then I want to look at some evidences that prove that you're a Christian. If these things are in your life and are growing, you can have confidence. You can have assurance that you're a Christian. Okay? So evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. First one is visible morality. Visible morality. I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I don't try to hurt anybody. I try to be honest. I try to be fair. I try to be on time. I'm, I'm, I'm better than most. Visible morality. Jesus is going to tell us visible morality doesn't prove anything. Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These were the most outwardly moral people of Jesus' day. And he says, woe to you. Look out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Some of you that were raised in a really moral environment, or maybe you're in a generation that was just a lot more morally upright than the one is today, it's very hard sometimes to differentiate between are you outwardly moral just because that's how you were raised? Or are you obedient from the heart? It's hard to tell. What Jesus says is visible morality, you're you're outwardly great, but inside, maybe not. Visible morality is not an evidence that proves anything. Second thing, intellectual knowledge. Do you you know the right things? Do you, right? Some of you go, I I know about the Trinity, and I know the Bible, and I know how it came to be, and I could explain the gospel, and I know what's right, and I know what's wrong, and I read the Bible, and I understand it. And, and, And that's wonderful, but but that doesn't necessarily prove or disprove anything. And if we want to just understand that, we look at Romans 2. We, we looked at this just last week, right? In Romans 2, Paul says, uh, well, well, just look at it here for a moment. Uh, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed for the law, from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's saying, you have the law. You know it. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. Congratulations. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? We talked about this last week. You can know the law. You can preach it. You can communicate. Here's what's true. You can have all the knowledge up here and have a heart of stone. It doesn't prove anything. Third thing that doesn't prove authentic faith is active ministry. Some people would say, you know, I'm really involved in my church. I serve. I volunteer. I, I, I try to help the homeless. I do a lot of great things. That is a wonderful thing to do, right? No one here today is saying that you should stop that Quit caring about poor people, right? And we're not saying that. We're just saying, don't point to that. That doesn't prove anything. Here's what Jesus says. One of the scariest passages in Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And by the way, when, God, when, we, when God's talking about doing his will, he means from the heart, 
not just externally, like I kept every jot and tittle, but I didn't do it in the heart. It's, it's as God intends. Jesus foreshadows a judgment day. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, now hold on a second. Think about that for a minute. How many of you have cast out a demon this week? I don't, I don't see any hands. You did? I want to hear that story after church. That's wonderful. Many of us have never cast out a demon ever or done any. I mean, these are talking about miracles, right? right? He's saying there are people who have a very active and vibrant ministry. They might even be on TV. And here's going to be his response. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And get this. It isn't that Jesus is just like, I don't like you. Well, that, uh, he's not capricious, like, oh, you're in, you're out. He's, he said, no, the reason is you're a worker of lawlessness. Yeah, you have this outward active ministry, but your heart is a heart of evil. That's a scary thing. So visible morality isn't proof of anything. Neither is intellectual knowledge. Neither is active ministry. Neither is feeling bad about sin. Some say, oh, I'm a Christian because, I, man, I leave church guilty every week. Okay? That doesn't necessarily prove anything. It just proves you were here. By the way, that's not my goal every week, though it does feel like that as we go through Romans. But here's, a, here's an example of this. In Acts chapter 24, it says this. After some days, Felix, Felix was a Roman uh, government official. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Hey, Paul, I want to I hear this whole message you're about. Come, come tell me about this. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, right, because Paul, the same guy who's writing Romans, is like, hey, Felix, we got a problem here. Judgment's coming. You're a sinner, right? Because before you hear the good news, you got to hear the bad news. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. It says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. You know what happened? Felix felt bad. He felt guilty. He heard what Paul said. Oh, I don't like that very much. I'm alarmed. That scares me. But, but he didn't have a conversion of his heart. He just had a feeling of guilt or feeling bad about sin. Here's the last thing that doesn't prove or disprove anything, is a time of decision. Jesus tells a parable um, where he says that, that a man went and scattered seed. And the seed represents God's word. And, and some of the seed landed on a path and immediately was eaten up by the birds. And others landed in stony soil that didn't have much root. And, and it grew up for a bit and then burned out because of the, it, didn't have, it didn't have a root and the sun scorched it. And he says, some other seed landed in this soil among thorns. And it grew up, but then the thorns choked it all out. And then some, soil land, or some seed landed in good soil. And it produced fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. That's the story he tells. And then the disciples are kind of going, Jesus, we didn't really understand that. What exactly did that mean? And so Jesus explains it. And he says that the, so the seed that landed along the path is like the... the, the seed that hits a stony heart and, and Satan comes in and just takes it away. But then he begins to explain what the other ones, those two in the middle meant. And here's what he says. 
Luke 8, 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying there are some people who hear God's word and go, oh yeah, I'm in. I want to follow. I'm coming forward. That's partly why, why, and I'm not all anti-altar call, but a lot of altar calls really can play up emotion, and, and I mean, they are, you are primed to come forward, right? And, and there are many people who have an experience of coming forward who do it in this moment of emotion, and they have this great joy, but they don't last. They don't keep walking with the Lord. I remember doing college ministry a number of years ago, and this one young man, it still breaks my heart, just seemed seemed like he was on fire for God. He couldn't read enough. He couldn't meet and ask questions enough. He couldn't talk to people about the Lord enough. And after about four months, the cares and the riches and pleasures of life choked it out. And today he would say, I'm not a Christian. But you had a time of decision. Yeah, but it didn't bear fruit. So a time of decision can be wonderful. It's wonderful to go, I mean, Dale talked about, he remembers the exact day that he heard John 14, 6, and he made a decision to follow Christ. And that decision doesn't disprove his faith, but it doesn't necessarily, that moment doesn't necessarily prove anything either. So some of you are going, well, gosh, all this stuff that I've been counting on, I, what am I, you're, you're shaking the foundations here. You're saying that outward morality and intellectual knowledge and active ministry and feeling bad about sin and, and time of decision, none of that necessarily matters? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what Jesus and Paul and the scriptures are saying. So then how can you know? How can you know if you're a Christian? What are some things that the scripture says you can point to to evaluate do I really know the Lord? And here's my hope is that as we go through this whole thing, that if you are truly a Christian, again, I'm not trying to get you to go in a tailspin of doubt. I hope you'll be encouraged as you see these things in your life. But others of you, this is a moment to take real inventory, to test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Proofs of authentic Christianity, there are seven. There could be more, but this is what I have for today. Uh, Number one is a love for God. Do you love God? Not just his gifts. Not just sort of being around spiritual moments. Not just all the stuff he blesses you with. But him? Psalm 42 and 73 say, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, that is strong language, right? As a, as a deer pants for water, so my soul for you, God. And, and, and listen, that doesn't mean that authentic Christians are always in this moment of, oh God, I gotta have as much as you as I can, and they never struggle, and they never, they never doubt. That's not what that's saying. But are there moments, and not just like a long time ago, 
But like periodically, these moments, not stirred up by some big emotion, not stirred up by any outward thing, but just this part of your heart, maybe as you read the scripture or as you pray, or as you look at a sunset and you just go, I love the Lord. If there are, it's evidence of authentic Christianity. And if there's not, you need to take inventory. Here's a second proof of authentic Christianity. It's turning from sin. Right? Anyone like Felix can feel bad about it. But are you turning from it? Is there what the Bible calls repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of living? It accompany, it's accompanied by confession. First uh, John, you're going to see a bunch of verses from First John here. And if, if this is something where you're wondering, am I a Christian? First John was written... John says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so read the first letter of John, 1 John, and he goes through a number of different tests to see if you have eternal life, if you're truly a Christian. And here's one, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So that's one way to know. If you go, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Okay, you then you're not a Christian. You're deceived. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, that means to agree with God, yes, that's wrong, with a desire to change. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he faithful and just to do that? Why, Why is it just? Why is it right for God to do that? Because he paid, he gave his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of your sin. So if you confess your sin and you say, God, this is wrong, and I'm trusting Jesus to forgive and renew and to change my life, then then it would be wrong for God to punish you again because he's already punished his son. But do you have that desire to turn? If you say you haven't sinned, you make him a liar and his word's not in you. Third mark of authentic Christianity is genuine humility. Genuine humility. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is there increasing humility in your life? Like you used to need a bunch of attaboys and pats on the back and attentions and Facebook likes, and now you don't care that much anymore. You don't need it. There's these moments of self-forgetfulness where you, you don't think about how am I being perceived and, and what are they, you just, here's what stinks about humility is as soon as you realize you have it, you lost it, right? But, but can you, so, so it's not like you can go, I am so humble, <laughs> right? But, but can you look back over your life and see it an increase in humility? Maybe ask those closer to you. Do I seem to be growing in humility or in pride? Because if you're growing in pride, God is opposing you, it says. Here's a fourth proof of authentic Christianity is selfless love. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that that, that you've passed out of death into life? He's going to say, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And he goes on to say in that book that that the mark of love is Jesus. 
Jesus' selfless love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So it's not the kind of love that's like, I love those who love me. I love those who will help me out. This is selfless love. Do you love God's people? Do you love people? Or do you just tolerate people? Love is an authentic proof of real Christianity. Number five, proof of authentic Christianity is a loyalty to God, not to the world. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Right now, here, he's not saying don't love the people, right? Because he's, we've already covered that. You gotta love the people. When he's talking about the world here, what he's talking about is the world system, the world's values, right? Exalt yourself, make a big deal of yourself, make as much money as you can, live for you, right? That whole kind of worldly mentality. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Are you growing in a love for worldly things? A love for the latest gadgets and all the latest stuff, and you got to have that, and look at me, and aren't I a good, right? If you're growing in that, it's says the love of the Father is not in you. Number six, proof of authentic Christianity is spiritual growth. This is in that same section where Jesus is explaining that parable about the seed. And he gets to the good soil and he says this, as for that in the good soil, there are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So these are people who hear the word, but it, but it bears fruit it, it, that, that has patience, that endures. It, it's an enduring thing. It's not just a, a raw emotion. Yeah, I got sucked in, but now I'm not walking with the Lord. It's, it's ever-growing fruit. You go, well, what fruit? What, is that, what does that mean? Jesus said, you'd know a tree by its fruit. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit, how you know if you have authentic spiritual life, is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are those things growing in you? And it's evidence of real faith, of real authentic Christianity. And then here's the last one, is obedient living. Again, not just external, but real heartfelt obedience. 1 John 2, And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The idea here is that obedience, I mean, obedience is inevitable in a real Christian life, right? And obedience is a sweet fruit, but it's a rotten root. It's a sweet fruit, but a rotten root, right? Some people say, well, I obey, therefore God should accept me. They're turning obedience into the root of their faith. I obey, therefore God should accept me. That's legalism. That's what the Jews in Romans 2 are doing. And Paul's saying, no, no. The reality is you're accepted by faith in what Jesus did, therefore you obey. And so obedience becomes the fruit, not the root. But, But true Christians are growing in their desire and in their living out increasing obedience. Are you a Christian?
I know you're here today. I'm glad you're here. Are you a Christian? Some of you have perhaps been thinking you are. And you've been going through the motions. And maybe you just, you don't know any better. You've just been kind of trying to figure this out. Well, I'm here to give you some truth today about what the scripture says, that you can test yourself, you can evaluate and see if you're in the faith. And if you take this test and you go, yes, I I see those things, not perfectly, but growing, then you can be encouraged and you can rejoice because you know if that's you, because there's real humility there, you know it isn't because of you. You know it's because God has worked this in you. This has been his work to change and grow your life. But if you would answer that question, am I a Christian? I don't know. Or, no, I'm not. Then what you need is not to redouble your efforts. And it's not you need an outward sign like, hey, come forward. Or get baptized. Those are wonderful things, again, but that's not what you need. What you need is a new heart. Circumcision, Paul said, is a matter of the heart. You need a renewal of your heart, a total transformation. You know, there are two kinds of heart transplants I learned this week. One is orthotopic, and the other is heterotopic. Now, for those of you who aren't heart surgeons, which I assume is most of us, here's what that means. Orthotopic is the kind of typical heart surgery or heart transplant we think about, where they take out the old heart that's not working and they put in a new one. Heterotopic is used in in rarer cases, but what what happens there is, is that they open up the chest and instead of taking out the old heart, they leave it in and they put a new one in also. And there's different health reasons why they do this, but, but a couple of them are that sometimes the old heart benefits from having the, new, the life of the new heart in it. And the real advantage is that if the new heart doesn't take, you can take the new one out without the risk of you know, not having a heart. Here's the thing. A lot of people want a heterotopic spiritual heart transplant. And what God wants to do is an orthotopic one. Some people go, well, I just want a little bit of this Christianity. Yeah, God, give me some of this Christian heart stuff, you know, but but if this doesn't really work, I want to be able to pull the plug on it and go back to my old thing. And what Jesus said was that you needed to be born again. Referencing Ezekiel 36, where God tells us that we in the new covenant will have our heart of stone removed and have a new heart of flesh beating in there, an orthotopic heart transplant. So if you're here and you go, I don't know if I'm a Christian, or no, I'm not, what you don't need is just a little bit extra God stuff added into your worldly heart. You need a new heart. And you can't give that to yourself. All you can do is plead with God Almighty by his grace to give it to you. Ask and you shall Find, or you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open. God is eager to give this to you, but you need to pursue him. You need to ask him, God, make me born again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it searches us and that it's like a mirror that helps us to see what's really in our hearts. God, give us the grace to see our hearts, and to see ourselves the way that you see us. We pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you, Luke. So.